Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to episode 211 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. Today's guest is the infamous Bo Burlingham, who I've talked about for years on this show and one of the main reasons I'm doing what I'm doing today. Bo is the former editor of Inc. Magazine and author of five books, including two of my personal favorites, Finish Big, How Great Entrepreneurs Exit Their Companies on Top, and Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Bo is also the co-founder of the Small Giants community, which focuses on developing purpose-driven business leaders who can create value-driven companies. Bo spent over 20 years as an editor and editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine, watching successful entrepreneurs build their companies. It was during his time at Inc. that he was inspired to write Finish Big when his partner on the book Street Smarts, Norm Brodsky, started down the path of selling his company. I also interviewed Norm a few years ago, and I'll link that in the show notes. It's a fantastic episode and interview. The two share Norm's journey in real time, writing about the sale in Inc. and even putting Norm on the cover when he decided to sell and receiving a lot of curiosity about what it takes and what actually happens when you sell a business, Bo went on to do tons and tons of interviews with owners who had left their companies for his book, Finish Big. And in order to get at what the differences are that drive those who are satisfied with an exit and those who are not. In today's conversation, Bo explains to us the wide range of good and bad exits from businesses built by owner-founder entrepreneurs and why over 75% regret the sale 12 months later. He shares what the entrepreneurs did who were proud and happy with their exit. Bo and I reconcile his research with my four years of work and over 200 interviews. And the reason I'm super excited about today's episode and having Bo back on the show is after the sale of our company, I read Bo's book back in 2015, and it was the main reason I started this podcast and eventually led to the creation of the Intention to Growth Five Principles. One of Bo's key takeaways from his research was owners who knew who they were, what they wanted from their business and why were the happiest about how things unfolded. I found that the missing piece was a framework to help owners actually figure out who they were, what they wanted and why. I came to the conclusion that the only way to figure this out is for owners to get truly educated on what it takes to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Education became the key to intentional actions, which resulted in a more valuable company that came with the ability to choose the path for themselves Once they knew who they were, what they wanted from their business and why, I believe that true freedom lies in the ability to have choices. And the only way to be happy with what you choose is for you to fully understand how each one of those choices impacts the things that are important to you. This is one of my favorite episodes because after Bo coming on the show at episode 16 over the last four and a half years, I've learned a lot. The market has changed a lot. Bo has more insights and we're here to deliver it to you so that way you can start thinking about who you are, what you want and why. One of the most actionable ways to start the process is to go to Arcona.io, take up the intentional growth assessment. It's 20 questions, multiple choice, and it's going to rack your brain to, so that way you can identify how well you understand what you want from your business and why and whether you're intentionally growing value 
to create more options for yourself. Arcona.io, or you can text the word intentional to 66866, and then you'll get an email with the assess- uh, the link to the assessment. Text 66866, the word intentional. Again, thanks for tuning in and being a great listener. Without further ado, here's Bo Burlingham. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Bo, I am so excited for you to be here. And I was going through, because Jack was just back on the podcast, and he actually said that you called him while I was interviewing him. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's just been fun because, you know, the rename of the podcast and, you know, when I reached out and I'll even give you a little, uh, I'll, I'll warm you up for the audience because you're like, I don't know if I've got anything new to talk about. And I said, you know what, how much I've learned since I read your book, Finish Big, which we read after we sold the business and what I learned and I was just like, huh, and how I've gone down on this rabbit hole for the last five years because of the book and realizing that it was a true, true thing out there for the owners who don't know what they want and why. Uh And I just am so excited to have you on the show again, because well, I I sort of feel like I should be interviewing you, Ryan, not the other (laughs) way around. I wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you sold the business four years ago, was it? It was in 2014 now. Yep. Yep. So that was was you and your dad, right? Yep. Yep. And it was uh, July of 2014. And it's. uh, Wow. Yeah. And I, what, what year did the, the Finish Big book actually come out? I don't know if I actually remember what year it came out. Uh, I'm not sure I remember either. I think it was in something like, it was sometime around then. I'm not, I, I don't really remember. I could look it up. <laughs> it's all good because you, know, you don't even have to look it up. The, the, the point of why I brought that up is because I read it afterwards. It wasn't like the book came out after we sold. It was, uh, I read the book. Uh-huh. After and I don't even remember who gave it to me. Honestly, it had like it looked like it came from like a used library. Someone had like got it and then gave it to me. And I think it's important for the listeners to to know that because when I read it, it was like I got this peer into what I had the emotional journey I'd gone through or was in the process of. Honestly, right? And sure. And I think what you know because I've talked about it and I've probably over the years you know morphed the stories and we it's all on record so <laughs> we could go and validate it, but. <laughs> Can you just, you know, almost revisit to the audience, like, why did you write it? Like, what came from it? Like, why did, what was the problem that you saw? Because it's obviously the same problem that I have seen and still see, and it's still there, which is just crazy interesting to me. Well, it, it, it came about sort of through the back door. I mean, I, I, you know, I was uh, writing a column with uh, Norm Brodsky for uh, Inc. Magazine. It was it was a monthly column, and so every month we'd have to sit down and figure out what what we we're going to write about. And uh, uh, one month he came back from a conference where he'd spoken to some people who wanted to 
buy his business and he'd sort of laid down some conditions that he didn't think they would agree to. And they said they didn't bat an eye. They said, yeah, sure, uh, we can do that. And so he, he, he said he, he told me that he thought he was uh, going to go ahead and sell it. Now, this is a shock to me because he always loved his business so much. He loved uh, spending time in it uh, and uh, just working on it. And, and it, I had a hard time imagining what Norm was going to be like without his business. <laughs> um, and uh, so I said, well, why, maybe we should write about that. And he said, yeah, sure, fine. Uh, why not? <laughs> well, you know, we later discovered that there were actually a couple of reasons not to write about um, just a couple selling your business <laughs> in real time. <laughs> but that came later. I mean, that came when he was in the in negotiations and people would turn to him and say, if, if I tell you this, is it going to wind up in Inc. magazine next month? Yeah. And no. uh, so not just your neighbor, but like the entire business community. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, so it, 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 it was very interesting. It was interesting experience. One that I don't think either one of us had anticipated or realized was going to happen because it sort of took on a life of its own. I mean, what was going on was that Norm was agonizing about whether or not he really wanted to go through with this. And he went back and forth. And at one point, we asked readers of Inc. Magazine, uh, who were, we knew that there were a lot of people who were following this. And uh, we asked them, you know, what's your advice? What do you think Norm should do? And uh, he got, we got a ton, we got hundreds of emails back, most of them saying, go ahead, Norm, go for it, sell it. And so um, that told me that there was a lot of, that there was, uh, from the response that we were getting to this series of columns, I could see that there was a lot of curiosity about, well, what's this experience like when you go through it? Mm -hmm. And so um, after we got in the end, in the end, <laughs> it was funny because he finally decided, yes, he was going to go through with the sale. And so the editor of Inc. thought that was big news because so many people were watching it. And she uh, put it on the cover, a big uh, cover story uh, saying Norm decides to sell. And it's sort of like the deal of a lifetime. And uh and so that was exciting. And then uh, we still had another column to do for the next issue after that. And so I waited a while and then I called him up and, and said, okay, Norm, what are we going to do next? And he said, well, I decided not to sell the company. I said, what? I, we just told millions of people that you decided, you made up your mind that this is the deal of, the, of a lifetime. And he said, well, I found something out that really sat the wrong way with me. Uh, he said, I, they never told me who the real decision maker was. And there was one guy in all our meetings who I absolutely hated. And I didn't think I could trust him at all. But he was just one guy among a whole bunch of people. And so I didn't really give it too much thought. And then I just found out that he is the guy who's going to make all the decisions about honoring any agreements. And I don't trust him. I don't think he's going to, I don't think I can count on him to do it. I mean, they made a lot of commitments vis-a-vis -vis my employees. And uh, 
I don't, I can't trust them to live up to that. And I said, okay, well, I, I guess, uh, we got um, a column. <laughs> we I, guess, I, I guess we got a column <laughs> and it's true. The next column was about how he decided he wasn't going to sell. At least he wasn't going to sell to that buyer at that time. And at that point, he, he, he still thought it was, and he was right that it was the timing was right to sell the business. And so he, he, he was going to continue uh, looking for a buyer, but we decided it was probably not a good idea to keep this uh, series of uh, columns going on while he was doing that. So he eventually did sell it. And, you know, there, the, the saga went on, but we just didn't write about it in real time. We wrote about it afterwards. And, uh, so from the response that we'd gotten to this series, I, I I thought, gee, that's very interesting that people are so fascinated with what's going on with Norm. And people have gotten like emotionally involved with this. And I, so I went to my publisher and I said, you know, I, I, I thought there was a book there. And he, he said, yeah, why don't you write a book on exits? That's a, that could be a good book. And I said, okay, well, I guess I better start writing it. And uh, so my agent and my publisher worked out a deal and I began doing my research. Well, the first thing I realized was that what I knew about exits was one thing, namely what happened to Norm. Because Inc. Inc. was, we never talked about, we never wrote about exits. Everything we wrote about was about starting companies, growing companies, and so forth. and I, I thought, well, gee, um, I better educate myself so that I can write a book. And I, I said, how am I going to do that? I said, well, you know, I, I do know what Norm went through. I've got to interview some other people who've been through this to find out, you know, what the experience was for them. And uh, they, uh, so I began talking to people and I wound up talking to, you know, dozens and dozens of uh uh owners that had uh who had left their companies most of them sold their companies and i i really just asked everybody i knew who 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 knew somebody to to let me know and uh um you know i began getting a lot of suggestions and i suppose the first thing that struck me was how many of the people i talked to were unhappy and wish they hadn't sold their businesses and you know we're having we're full of regrets or there were parts of the whole experience that they didn't like and uh i would say it was uh i thought it was about half and half but people tell me that that i was probably being too conservative there was probably more than half who had had regrets afterwards and so i said well i guess that's my book what's the difference between the ones who wind up happy and the ones who wind up you know full of uh, remorse about what they've done and uh so that that became the book um what i thought was amazing about that book and we, and i want to because you've got four and then you kind of have this asterisk slash five that are that are the reasons of what people did to be happy but i, I think I'll, I'll explain to you both that like four and a half years of this yeah and hundreds of interviews and i can pretty much say 
you're right. <laughs> and, you know, and even like not only doing my interviews with business owners and also advisors, I mean, it's probably half business owners and then a fourth authors and then a fourth uh, advisors. But like, there's a lot of regrets or frustrations and in like, and I actually, and then I had my business model that I was evolving over time, trying to create the business model to help solve this problem. And like the crazy part was of the absolute like visceral reaction people have about the word exit. And, you know, and you're going to talk about why people want it, like what, what they need to know, they need to know about themselves and why, but like, I've been trying to like, you know, essentially slide in to help educate owners. And the, yeah. like, it's just this, like almost like two of the, the polar opposites of magnets, just like bouncing away from that, yeah. which is the name, the name change on the podcast, my company. And the, the crazy part is, is like, I found oh that the it's, it's themselves. And I want you to explain your four and five, but like, I was never a technical finance guy. Like literally right. I was a sales guy, strategic. I'm the visionary kind of uh, DNA. And I went straight down these rabbit holes over the last four years because I realized that to understand, to essentially have the freedom to choose, you have to understand this, to understand who's sitting across from you, how the choices and the different data points connect. Otherwise it's going to just like not happen the right way. Like it, and yeah. it's just... I don't know. Yeah. Any, as you as you explain your four slash five, maybe give some comments about the word exit or what you've seen. Well, I've 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 definitely seen that, and uh, it was one reason why we didn't mention the word exit in the title. We it took a while to come up with the title, actually. But uh, you know, I, the, what you're saying is exactly what John Warlow ran into. You know, because originally he called his site. Uh, after his book, Built to Sell. And uh, that's how he wound up starting it. And uh, he began to get some traction on that. And then then after starting this new business called Built to Sell, which I wrote about and finished big, he realized that somehow this was turning people off and that he had to, he had to switch it around. And so he just, he said, he started calling it Value Builder. And it turned out that Value Builder, people people were fine with Value Builder, even though it was exactly the same content as Built to Sell. Intentional um, growth. Here I am. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And uh, uh, so, you know, you're absolutely right about that. I, I, you know, the thing I found was, as a, you know, as you mentioned, that there were certain when I when I went when I looked at what I'd come up with after. Um, I'd done all that interviewing and sort of gone through the transcripts of the interview and really sort of thought about what it was that I that I'd found. I realized that there were there were actually certain things that the people who had bad exits either did or didn't do that the people who had good exits did or didn't do. It was the opposite of what the people who had good exits were. And by, I had to define what, what I meant by a good exit. And I decided that, you know, there were like four or five characteristics. Number one, that you felt like the process you'd gone through in selling the business was fair and that you'd been rewarded for what you'd put into it. And number two, which was related to that, was that you could, if, 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 if you could look back and take some pride in what you'd done that you'd 
created mm-hmm. something of value to the world and and uh that you you could you could really take some satisfaction about how you'd spent your life and number three, you felt fine about what had happened to all the people who'd been sort of on this journey with you and and four number four was that you ab- succeeded in making a transition to whatever you were going to do afterwards. And and then for some people, there was a fifth one, which was the company was continuing to go on and, and, and doing very well without you, which, you know, for some people that was very important to have happen because, well, aside from everything else, it showed that you had done one of the most difficult things in business you know, and, and t- taking your company through the biggest transition that uh, it was ever going to have, mm-hmm. namely the change of ownership and leadership, and uh, that it was. Uh, so I, I decided that was in those uh, four or five uh, qualities defined a good exit. A bad exit is when you didn't have one of them, mm-hmm. and it, it only took one of them to uh, give you a bad exit. So. I, I then said, "Well, okay, now let's now let's now let's look and see what the people who had good exits did in order to um, have that good exit." Mm-hmm. And I came up with, uh, as you say, seven and a half different uh, qualities. Uh, you know, the first one was what you talked about, namely knowing who you are, what you want, and why. You know, which was something that I also found with Small Giants, which was another book I wrote, which was that people who have a clear idea in their own mind about who they are, what they want and why are able to make decisions that are going to make them happy. Whereas otherwise you wind up making decisions based on other people telling you what they think you mm-hmm. should do. And uh, so that was that was number one. And then number two was that it was important to build a sellable company and by sellable i meant that it was that your company you were able to sell your company to whom you wanted when you wanted and why and no 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 when you wanted and for an amount that you considered fair mm-hmm. um and you know that was that was certainly uh you know there there were there are some things called forced sales uh where happens a lot a lot of yeah. offers or that the people go all the way down and they wish they wouldn't have and it's it, you know it's absolutely right and then a third one had to do with uh giving yourself enough time uh that you know as you know Ryan a lot of people you know get the they don't want to think about their exit and then suddenly they get to a point where they're, you know, 70 years old or whatever it is. And they realize, gee, I'm, I'm going to have to get out of here. Um, and, and they think, by golly, who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. and, and so they call up their lawyer or their accountant and they say, listen, I'm ready to sell. Uh, and they say, well, when do you want to sell? And they, they usually say, well, I'd like to sell, I don't know, six months. And it turns out to be not nearly enough time. And that's particularly true if the way you plan to sell requires you to have a successor. Because if you need a successor, 
it, it, the chances are you're going to fail the first time. The first, and, and all the people I interviewed, there was one person who, who the first time actually chose a successor who turned out to be absolutely the right successor. Everybody else uh, who did need a successor brought in somebody. A couple bruises along the way. <laughs> yeah, brought in somebody who, you know, they later found out was absolutely not right. And uh, and they had to sort of take the lessons they learned from that and go back and find another successor. You know, another another, I guess number four was I found it was important to have the right help and the right advice. Since you're embarking on something that you've never done before, chances are you've probably never done before, and um, you don't know how to do it. It's totally different from building a business. It's a, a whole other discipline. Different and, job. Different. Yeah, it's a different job, exactly. And you need to have someone advising you about this who has been through it. And uh, that's why I became such a fan of peer groups. Mm -hmm. like Evolve in Chicago, you know, where you could actually, you could meet with people who were thinking about this or who had actually gone through it themselves and could talk to each other about these very, very personal issues uh, and that you could trust them. You know, that, that, that was, uh, that I found was critically important. I mean, you know, when you sell a business, you're going to need lots of help from all kinds of professional people like, you know, lawyers, uh, insurance people, wealth managers, and so forth. But I found that it was particularly important to have some way to sort of be guided by somebody who had actually been through it themselves. Because among other things, that person understood that it wasn't over when you when you uh, get the wire found, found a buyer, yeah, it, it, it actually you still got a whole, a whole way to go before you. And then you know the next thing I, I guess I don't know what what I'm up to. I guess the fifth thing, yeah, the the, the fifth thing was that um, you know what I talked about before was the importance of thinking very very carefully about what is going to leave you at peace, whatever happens. You know, the, the, the sale of this business is going to affect a lot of people, not just the owner who's selling. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was very important to think about in advance about how it was going to affect other people and to do by them whatever it was that you needed to do so that you're at peace afterwards. It was, it was a big thing that uh, led to people feeling unhappy afterwards. Mm -hmm was they'd look and see what happened to these other people who'd been on this journey with them all these years. And they had not, well, it had not worked out well for them. And then the owner would feel tremendously guilty and carry mm -hmm. that around with him or her for a long time. And then the, the next one was uh, really the importance of doing your own due diligence. I mean, you know, Everybody knows that when somebody comes to buy a company, one of the things they're going to do is look very, very closely at your company and do a lot of due diligence. And what people sometimes forget 
is that they've got to do just as much due diligence on the buyer as the buyer is going to do on them because it's very important to understand why it is that the buyer wants to own your company. And buyers have different motives. I mean, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're buying your company for their intellectual property and you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily know that. And they, of course, in the process, they're telling you how great your people are and how, how, how wonderful the things you've done in the business are. But what they're really, Want want to do is uh, is get your intellectual property, and then if you haven't prepared for that, if you haven't seen that and realized that that was going to happen, then you haven't prepared adequately because things are going to happen after the sale, which you're not going to like, but you you're not you're not going to have any ability to affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. And legal documents have no no significance or very little significance in this context because if 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 the buyer starts doing things that you don't like you go to your lawyer and say well wait a minute they they said they said they wouldn't do this in the uh in the contract and the lawyer says cuz usually there's a, a a certain amount of money that's in escrow and and the lawyer usually says well you know that money you have in escrow and you say yes, and they say, well, do you want it? <laughs> and of course, it's usually a big part of the sale. So of course you say yes. They say, well, then don't make waves about this because uh, you know, you know, if you do, that's gonna jeopardize your ever getting the rest of what you're owed for your company. And then the, the last one, um, really the seventh is, it, which is, very, very important in many ways, the hardest part, which is making the transition. If you've spent your whole adult life or your, you know, years and years and years building this business, there are a lot of things you're getting out of it that you don't realize until you don't have it anymore. I mean, when people ask you what you do, you say, well, I run this company and, you know, here's what this company does and so forth. Or, you know, you, the the people that the people you go and see every day. You know, you, you know, you, you it's easy to take them for granted. Your social network, your identity. You, it's just... Exactly, your identity, your purpose, and suddenly all these things are gone. And if you haven't gone back to that first one of uh, figuring out who you are, what you want, and why you're going to run smack into it at that point. You're going to find yourself saying, wait a minute, who am I? What do I want? <laughs> and why? And uh, <laughs> um, How does that impact my business, my money, the value, like everything? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, Bo, and I, and I want to I, I want to relay, because I, I don't know if in the, the emails that you and I exchanged back and forth, if, if you totally grasp the five principles, because I... I because and I want to explain the journey that I went on. Because after I figured found out your you know kind of the four things that happy people did, and then mm-hmm. the, the kind of the seven things that you have to really take into account. One of the things that I I struggled with was okay, how now? How do I actually figure out how who I am? How do uh-huh. I actually figure out what to work on? And because it's like it was so true. Like I read your book and I was like, uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like <laughs> not, I got my head probably. I had to go to the chiropractor pretty much. So I was nodding so much. 
And so the five principles were synthesized, it's probably similar to how you created these over all the years and the, the, the interviews. And it was really about trying to like, okay, what needs to be learned and consumed to make those decisions? So the first one, and then I'll, and then I'll tell you like how a comment of how someone would articulate this. And then I, and then I want to get into kind of the small giants and then how do we, what are ways to get through to owners? Cause I think those are some of the biggest challenges, but so the five principles came from both like, okay. And they go in order of like, so the first one is your drivers. What do you want and why? And that kind of right. right from you. And we have all these assessments of like, Hey, is it legacy? Is it identity? Is your social network? Is it disrupting industry? What like there's right. all these reasons that someone chose to do this. Right. And then someone answers these questions, but then you have to stack on the, which is the second principle of your, your financial targets. Uh-huh. And there's three of them. What is your target annual income cash flow? Uh-huh. And then what is your second one is your net worth outside the business? Cause you might uh-huh. have tons of real estate or investments. Then the third one is the value of your company and understanding right. how that impacts your financial situation. Right. Cause then you can layer it on top of your first principle is to say, how much do I actually need? Yeah. And then, and then to be able to quantify how much I want, you know, like quantify me staying in the business, not seeing the business to a dollar amount. Uh-huh. And so that's why we dive in. We teach so much on valuations. And then the third principle are the exit options. And this is where I think things get fun and where I think what Jack stack is a, is literally a, a shining example of how someone could get all the things that they want. So the five, the five exit options are one is internal. So that could be management partnerships or family. The second one is what we call acquisition entrepreneur, like a search fund. So someone that wants to come in and buy a job for the most part. Uh Uh And then the third one is an ESOP Uh and selling to your employees. And then the fourth one is private equity. And that could Uh be family office would fall into that. So, you know, professional investors. And then the fifth one is a strategic buyer. And, Uh The, the concept that needs to be absolutely understood going into that is the difference between your, your leadership role and how you get paid for that versus uh-huh. your ownership stake. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because there's transitions that could be done differently on both of those. And I think what I've run into, Bo, is that so many people when they say exit, they're literally thinking I'm getting kicked to the curb and that's uh-huh. my exit. Uh-huh. However, you could literally, like in this example if what was really important to you, principle one was my employees and my legacy. And I literally love this business. And then the uh-huh. financial targets, you've pretty much accomplished a lot of these and you only need maybe half your value up front. Uh-huh. You could then sell to your employees where you're selling the ownership, but you're running the company till the day you die. And yeah. that's technically not an exit in the way that a lot of people think about this. So these <laughs> first, first three principles set up the framework to literally identify what do they want and why. And then principle four is increase value. So now you know what you want and why. Let's grow your EBITDA and your multiple and pay down debt in the direction that you want to go. Uh-huh. And then the fifth principle is hire to hire your team of advisors that are going to optimize that plan. So instead of getting, you know, going to your attorney or your CPA or wealth manager, all these people and them telling you what you think you should do, you mm-hmm. go to them and you say, well, here's what I want. Uh-huh. And so the, uh, my, one of my favorite phrases is this client of ours who's gone through the, uh, the digital course or who's like the boot camp digital course, he consumed the material. And he said, Ryan, I want to go from a... So he's doing 10 million in revenue right now and 1.2 in EBITDA. And he's saying, you know what? 
right now, I don't want to sell to a strategic because it's right now only worth five and a half million bucks and he would only net two and a half. And he would probably have to sell to a strategic buyer that would not accommodate all the legacy things. Uh And if I can go from 1.2 in EBITDA to two, I will go from a five and a half million dollar valuation to 12. And I'll go from netting 2.5 to netting eight. And then I can do an ESOP in 36 months and sell to my employees. And then I'll have 36 months to hire my transition, my, my, my leadership role. It's very specific. And then everything falls into line with where they want to go. Mm-hmm. So th- that's kind of like the how to actually dive into it. But this, the craziest challenge that I've had, which goes into like the small giants and then just teaching people this is uh-huh. getting through to people that are like just grinding day to day to understand this. I have spent like every waking minute for the last six years trying to figure out marketing phraseology is to get through to people. <laughs> and it's about driven me mad, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> to get through, tell me, tell me more about that, Ryan. That it, what do you run into when you uh, talk to people? Well, and this is what Jack Stack and I talked about. I don't know if it was on the record or off, is that there's so much noise out there. And like you have these owners. So like one of the biggest things is there's like, I'd say 90 plus percent of business owners have their mindset optimizing for annual income. So how many, how much distributions and how much, what's my K1 going to be? How do I max or uh, minimize my taxes? But what they're doing is they're sacrificing long-term value growth. So like, and there's so like there, I actually did this podcast recently about the psychology is actually like, it's actually brain science where the flow is mm-hmm. like it's almost like an addiction of like loving what you're doing, right? But to think about an exit or any of this other stuff is almost like doing estate planning where people will like sure. do that. So there's right. like you're almost fighting human behavior while also the fact that people want to they're solving for the annual income. So our, the goal is to try and get through to them that this actually creates a whole different paradigm shift. They opens up more options. It's just been the hardest thing ever. And they'll say like, Hey, EOS is solving all my problems, which is Uh totally bullshit. I mean, Uh it's a great operating system, but it doesn't solve these problems. Right. There's, there's someone that they hired that allowed them to shut off all the, the receptivity to other things. Uh What is your thoughts? I mean, or experience with that? Well, I'm I'm actually just, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you, you, you know, uh, Allie Taylor. Yep. She's actually coming back on the show too. You're pretty soon. Oh, good. Yeah, she should. Uh, Because she knows a lot and she's taught me a lot actually about sort of psychologically what it is that that gets in the way of people. I mean, I think that you're right that for many people thinking about the exit is like thinking about their funeral. Um, And uh, you've got to get beyond that because they have a hard time thinking about what's going to happen, what they're going to do afterwards. And uh, and that's like assuming that they have to leave the role. And that's where I want right. to, that's a good bridge to the small giants community that you and Paul have created and yeah. Ward and what Jack's doing, because like, and, and I think, I think the one question that I asked you years ago was, can you finish big and be a small giant? And it almost literally leads you up to an ESOP <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> so well, well, actually, I've been um, I've been very involved with another group who somebody you probably want to interview is a guy named Dave Warden, who is the uh, 
W-H-O-R-T-O-N. And he is the founder of what's called the Tugboat Group. Hmm. And if you if you go online and you look for Tugboat Institute, you'll find it. And uh, it's it's similar to small giants, but it, the the difference is the, a lot of these companies are not particularly small. There, you know, there 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 are a number of people who are in both small giants and in tugboat, but there are other people who really, you know, I mean, they're they're worth billions of dollars, and that's that, not small. <laughs> that's not small, um, and. Uh, you know, it, <clears throat> but they they have what they call the uh, seven P's, which are uh, I actually wrote about them um, in Inc. Was the last article I wrote for Inc. Uh, in 2015. They their seven P's are, you know, let me see if I can get this right. Purpose. I'm gonna be impressed. Purpose. Uh, people. People first. Profit as a uh, measure of uh, basically uh, added value. In other words, how well have you added value to your customers? Mm-hmm. Um, what else? What am I missing? There's something called pace growth, which is sort of what Jack does, which is not fast growth, not focusing on fast growth, but but focusing on growth over time. Uh, because if you, you know, if you, it's if, profitable, <laughs> yeah, it's profitable, and <laughs> and and also, you know, if if you grow, you know, what ten or fifteen percent a year, or eight or ten percent a year, you may not wind up on the Inc. Five Thousand, but, but over <laughs> over thirty years, you're going to get to be very very big and generate an awful lot of cash. Um, versus what well, Jack, I mean, you, you want to get Jack going, you tell him that, uh, that, uh, the pre seed valuation is $10 million. You can get him going. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Get, get, you know, a thousand percent growth with no cash. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, and then <clears throat> another one is what they call pragmatic innovation, which is that you, um, you, you innovate, not by throwing a lot of money at something. Uh, in fact, money sort of undermines in, innovation because if you can solve problems with money, you will. If you have to <clears throat> solve them with your own hard work and creativity, it's harder. But but that's where the lasting innovations come yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I um, I've been spending a lot of time with, with tugboat and 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 these are companies. The, the the members of it are, are known as evergreen companies, and that is companies that last for years and years and years. And that the goal is, you know, if you have a young company in it, these are companies that, you know, they, they want to last for at least 100 years and what have you. I mean, there's one company in this, in Tugboat, it's been around for 300 years. It was... Uh, originally chartered by the king of england um and uh it's it's been in continuous existence for the same family for i happen to be related to this family but that's, <laughs> that is totally coincidence uh and 
and it's you know it's still going strong. Obviously, if you're going to be around for 300 years, you're going to have to do a lot of innovating along the way. <laughs> well, you're not going to. So interesting, Bo. Is it's like so a couple of the things when I noted the in the email to you asking to come back on is I read the book Conscious Capitalism and it yeah. like changed. I was just like totally makes so much sense and it's it's really hard to find these veins in our in our culture that are like hey by the way you can make a lot of money and do a lot of good at the same time because like i thought like when i was reading the book or even people i've interviewed it's like the nonprofits have to go find the capital from someone else so you might Uh as well create something in like the the platform you have with customers and vendors and suppliers and all the people in your community like you have a better chance and a bigger leverage with owning uh-huh. the company continuing to generate cash than a lot of nonprofits do. Uh-huh. And it's just, and so the Tugboat um, Institute sounds a lot like that. And, and none of, another book that came out to, that just validated it for me was Simon Sinek's new book, The Infinite Game. He yeah. actually mentioned the finite problems with the private equity timeline of four to seven years. And yeah. then also the quarterly reports of the, the public companies, which look at it right now, we have a, four, a, a fourth or a third that they're called zombie companies. You're not making any freaking money. Uh-huh. And it's like, it, like, it goes back to what you're like, just focusing on the right things. And it's just interesting to find that there's these things starting to come out that are enough people that finally go through the process and are not happy with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that, you know, the, the other thing is this, is that, you, you know, that if you are going to, if you if you if you are starting a company with the goal that you want it to last as an independent entity for a hundred years, one thing that you know is that you're not going to be there when it happens. So you're, you're going to have you're still going to have to deal with the transition. Now, some of these businesses are family businesses, and you know there are a lot of great family companies out there. And basically, when I wrote Finish Big, I looked very hard for uh, companies that had lasted beyond two generations. In other words, they, they, they lasted to the third generation. In other words, it's possible to find a successor who is going to run the company, um, you know, is, let's say is going to buy the company and run it the way the original owner did. To go to a third generation is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only companies that I was able to find that ha- were able to do that were either family businesses or employee-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and my theory about that was that someone needs to be the protector of the culture and the way of doing business. And that in a family-owned business, it's the family that, uh, it, not that all family-owned, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, not very good family-owned businesses that go out of business, but in, in, in a long-lasting family-owned business, the, the family plays that. Yeah, of like, what are our core values? Like, uh, yeah. And- and Simon Sinek, and, and without being fluffy about that too, like, I mean, Simon Sinek says that in his book and I, he actually gave some examples of some big public companies where like, if you don't have someone essentially playing whack-a-mole with all the, 
you know, the cancerous decisions that could pop up in a company for short-term thinking, you have to like actively, (laughs) actively go after that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, with the, um, you know, we'll see what happens with Jack, obviously. Well, we won't see it. Uh, You're younger than Jack and I, so you may see it, but you know, there's going to be a transition there and people have, you know, Jack has been, he, he always polls everybody to ask them what they want. And, and even though he could probably figure it out on his own and what they want is to keep doing what they're doing and, uh, and, you know, to get bigger and create more opportunities and so mm-hmm. forth. And, uh, um, at some point there's going to be, he's going to have to leave, you know, that's all there is to it. I mean, he's not going to live forever. So, um, there seems to be a general consensus actually that, uh, that his son, Hmm. Tim is the logical successor. And, uh, he's got two sons in the business and, uh, the older one is also named Ryan. Um, he is not, he has no aspirations to, uh, run the business or anything like that. And he thinks his his younger brother, Tim, is the person who is best equipped to do that. And there's a lot of people who sort of share that feeling. But in any event, you know, there's got to be something that keeps keeps you going Mm -hmm. uh, beyond any individual. And, uh, you know, I've talked to Jim Collins about this, actually. Um, And it's one thing to do it in a public company <clears throat> because, you know, you have shareholders and you have a board of directors that's uh, fairly powerful and, and so forth. It, it's another thing to do it in a private company. And all of the companies in uh, Tugboat are private. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another P. That's another, yeah, there you another, go. <laughs> that's another P was private because... You know, he he is somebody. He's an interesting guy himself because he he was he's a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. Uh, he was at Kleiner Perkins. He was the right hand man of uh, John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins, and uh, he um, but he he basically believes that companies that that you have to be private in order to really have this sort of long-term uh, focus. You don't have Although, analysts that are like constantly judging your quarterly earnings. and Right. You know. well, right. What's also interesting with that, Bo, and this is where like, you know, I have gone to the nth degree of diving into understanding valuations and numbers and all that stuff because when I kept, like as I kept pulling this thread, is like well, you, the, the, the friction and the, the objections I kept getting, it was because... Like once you actually understand the numbers, then you can start making decisions. And a lot of like, I read one of the the big financier books, the King of Capital with uh, the Stone, uh, Blackstone's rise of private equity. Right. Oh my right. gosh! But the, right. but like the challenge is when you when you're too small or certain th- or people don't understand value and they don't understand the difference between ownership versus W two. Human beings just go to their lowest common denominator, which is fight for survival. Uh-huh. And arguing over things they don't understand, which is the value. Or like when you explain that thing with Jack Stack, it's like, well, they're all owners. So like they're going to do what's best for the company instead of best for themselves. 
because they're all going to benefit from it. And so like, and I think about the problems when you get to the lower end of the spectrum where you do these without doing an ESOP, you do these internal transfers, the taxes and the, and how it suffocates the cash flow of the company, you almost can't at the same. So there's just like this whole like problem of like being able to facilitate these things that is a yeah. whole different probably interview in itself. But Well, you, you know that it's one thing to give people ownership. It's another thing to teach them to understand ownership. And, and that, is, that is hard. That takes years. And ownership isn't all wonderful. Uh, there are a lot of responsibilities that come with, that comes with ownership. You know, and and there are times when you have to do things that you may not want to do, like you may have to come up with cash uh, at a certain point and so forth. And uh, so to really understand it is, you know, I I mean, I I, I mean, most I, I think that the great game of business has become very, very widely utilized among uh, employee-owned companies because it's basically a system for teaching uh, ownership. And uh, I mean, Jack always talks about how his goal is to build a business of business people. He wants everybody in the business to be a business person. I love it. It's like the best mission. And I mean, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So as we're, as we're kind of wrapping up here, Bo, uh, you know, the big kind of question that I've had is like, how do you teach more of that? Like what Jack's, you know, like other than having Jack who owns a company who then can almost ingrain into the culture of teaching business people, you know, I've run into problems with the word exit and like trying to get through to people before they get an out of the blue offer or something happens where they can truly grow value to create more options to like be able to articulate what they want. I mean, with your small giants and with these, like, how have you seen where do business owners become the most receptive to like learning? And what do you, what, what, what differentiates the people that truly like to understand what they want and how to learn these things? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I thought you uh, had, a, I thought you had an easy answer for me and everybody. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's, there's certain things that, uh, it's easy not to think about, and uh, you can go a long time without thinking about them. But life has a certain way of making you think about certain things, because in fact, none of us live forever. And uh, you know, there are certain questions you're, you're just gonna you're gonna you're gonna be forced to answer at a certain point, even if you don't particularly want to answer them. And and that happens, of course, if you I, I think that what you're doing, what you and your partner are doing, it can be very valuable to people uh, in terms of getting their heads in the right place to actually deal with all of these things. But don't mention that this is about exiting. <laughs> no, it's like it's like the most it's the most authentic, caring bait and uh, bait and switch ever. Right? Yeah. It's like, like this is not to sell you a, a get rich quick pill. This is a you know like hey, there's a lot of work after this, but like <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I you know I think with small giants, once 
a lot of small giants, you know, they they wind up selling some stock or all of their stock to an ESOP or or to their employees. There are some, you know, there are some companies. The ESOP isn't the only way to have mm-hmm. employee ownership. There are other ways, and some people prefer them and look for them. Um, but uh, once you start sort of getting in there, you you, you start thinking about, well, if you're still there and uh, your company is running fine and it doesn't really need you anymore, which is, of course, the goal, then there are other things you can do. I mean, there are, um, there are, there's a company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which might be a good company for you to interview. It's called Atomic Object. And their design and uh, I, I think they're, you know, a digital and uh, design company, basically. Okay. And uh, they have instituted an employee. I know who they are. So my my friend of mine, I, I'll have to, yeah, I know, I know exactly who you're talking about. And they came up recently in a conversation, actually. <laughs> yeah. Carl Erickson is. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Are they in the Small Giants community? Uh, they're both in Small Giants and in Tugboat. <laughs> uh, my friend, uh, yeah, he he's, he would know who he's talking. Who this? Uh, that's awesome. That that's validating yeah. on a lot of a lot of fronts. And uh, well, you know, I I don't know the details of what they've done, but I do know that. Um, they're pretty happy with it. And I know that Carl is, uh, you know, he's off doing lots of other things. And, well, I think even to validate your point, boy, it, like if someone really enjoyed sales or they're an engineer and they wanted to, you know, you know, go more into design or whatever it is, if it doesn't rely on you and you've got your financial targets met, you could go back in and uh-huh. whatever you want. I mean, that's right. the whole point, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's that's great. This has been fun. I appreciate you so much for coming back on. And Well, I appreciate you, uh, Ryan, for everything that you're doing. And uh, actually, it's very interesting to me to hear how what you've been doing has evolved and to see how it's evolved over the years. One Thursday podcast email at a time, right? <laughs> right. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Well, if you're, the, if you're a listener in right now, I know that you're kind of, you've got your own mix of things that make you happy and what you're doing day to day. But if you were to put them in touch, I don't know if it's small giants would be the best place for them to go or any of these places you got any, or, or, you know, obviously get the book finished big and small giants. Any other suggestions that you'd have for the listeners? Well, every, every business is different, obviously. And as you well know, and uh, people sometimes ask me, what are the most important management innovations that I've seen. I mean, I've been, I've, I've been, um, I've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I really think that the most powerful business tool that I have ever seen has been open book management, uh, at least as it's practiced by Jack Stack at the great uh, the great game of business people get confused a little bit they think open book management just means making your numbers available to people and most people couldn't care less about your numbers i mean it's like they find it all boring and uh, you know the real 
challenge is to um, do something like Jack has done to get. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's... And the second one, I, I also am a fan of of Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, and they have a visioning system, which has been, uh, which I think is very powerful. And if you haven't talked to them, you should talk to Ari, Ari Weinzweig. Um, and then I also think that things like the net promoter score, which is uh, figuring out basically how to um, um, measure things that are that are difficult to measure. And I, I, I really think that those three things are, are, are really crucial. So the last question I would have for you then, Bo, is what does the word intentional mean to you? Well, I don't have any great insights into that. In, intentional means to me it, it's something you want to do and that you uh, plan to do and that you make an effort to do. Why? Why do you ask? That's the name <laughs> of the podcast. And it's, uh, I, I would say that like part of my definition so far has been when someone says, what do you, what's intentional? I'm like, you understand who you are, what you want, and why, and then you get a plan to go get it. <laughs> that's it. That's good. That's that's great, Ryan. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for coming back on, Bo. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ryan. And we'll be in touch. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bo. If you've been a listener for a long time, you hear me talk about him a lot. So it was so much fun to get him back on the show, hear his insights and reconcile what I've learned with where the marketplace has come. I highly suggest that if you have any questions about what do you want from your business, are you on track to grow a valuable company, and do you have the choices that you want, go check out our intentional growth assessment. It's on our website, arcona.io, and it's 20 questions. And they're questions just to help you think about what do you want? Are you growing value? And are you going to create the choices that you want in order to accomplish your goals long-term with the business? Arcona.io. Otherwise, you can text the word intentional to 66866. You'll get a link to the assessment. Text 66866, the word intentional, and then you'll get a link to the assessment. Thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate all the listeners. I've had a lot of great feedback over the last couple months, and it's been a super fun journey, and I cannot wait to keep continuing this. Lots of fun interviews to come.